Let's get a Thursday edition underway. It is the midday program on the Rural Radio Network, and we are going rural to start things off today. Somewhere on a hill in western Kansas, we find Susan Littlefield. You bet. We are just outside of Albuquerque, Kansas, and I actually just turned on the radio volume up a minute, and I actually could hear you. Uh, that's and, excellent. Isn't that awesome? We've got a lot of listeners all across western Kansas, and uh, you can just wave as they go by and say, hey. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. Alex and I are actually down in Kansas today, a neat opportunity, especially with all the discussions that have been going on with um, trade issues. They are going to be bringing U.S. Grains Council some Mexican organ buyers in, and they're going to be touring a farm just outside of Albaline. So so we're going to catch up with them. talk about what they're here in the United States and keeping that dialogue open between the two countries, even though on the political side it doesn't seem to be moving so well. Mm -hmm. You know, producer to producer, it always works a lot better. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Other things happening for us, Bryce at 1219 is going to be talking with the director of the Nebraska Energy Office about updates on ethanol and other renewable fuels across the state. Alex at 1245 dives into 30 years of corn plant density research with Pioneer that has continued for them. And then at 117, Clay catches up with his Norfolk mayor, Josh Moline. He talks about a recent trade mission to Vietnam and, of course, about Nebraska ag products that they are hungry for in Vietnam. So lots right. of interesting things happening. Yeah, absolutely is. Okay, well, we'll let you get back on the road. We appreciate you checking in with us from uh, from Kansas. Appreciate it. No problem. Be looking for some pictures later on. We're hoping to catch a wheat harvester to the back. Absolutely will. All right, talking sorghum down at Abilene. When you said she was on a hill in Kansas, I thought she was going to be at Mount Canarado, which is west of Goodland, which is, I believe, the highest point in Kansas. Yeah, have you seen that yet, Susan? No, that's a long ways from Madeline. Not yet. Yeah. Okay. Well, when you see that, do that, and on your way back, make sure you catch the largest ball of twine. Okay, I'll be looking for it. <laughs> okay, thanks. All right, here we go with... Uh, have you ever been by the largest ball of twine? I have, That's pretty times. cool. Yeah. It absolutely <laughs> is. Uh, here we go with... Uh, let's see, we've got uh, CWA, we've got NBA, and we have JAJ. Jason, what's the middle name? Allen. Jason Allen Jorgensen. That might be too much personal information on the radio. It might but, be. But anyway, we are talking CWS. There's a, one game tonight. Hopefully they can... Get that in. I think they will. That should be a nice night for baseball in Omaha. Another elimination matchup after they were able to play two games yesterday. Also, the NBA draft is tonight. The Phoenix Suns are on the clock. They pretty much know who they're going to pick, unless there's a trade at the last second or something like that. But uh, we will fill you in on that. Also, we'll talk uh, Nebraska football schedule uh, a couple years out. If you'd like to make your plans in September, they have switched up some games between Central Michigan and South Dakota State. Uh, Only in Nebraska would that be be news. <laughs> <laughs> but it's all news it is. all the time, absolutely. All right, Jason, thanks very much. Uh, I'm sorry to have stolen your identity. That's okay. Right. <laughs> Bob Brogan on business. Stocks are falling today. Also, kind of a big decision or small decision depending on who you are the supreme court has ruled states can force online shoppers to pay sales tax there'll be a collective groan among some people on that one and intel ceo has resigned more on that later all coming up today on midday 
All right, let's uh, take a look at the radar picture and see what Paul Pick, uh, well, what Paul Picture is saying, <laughs> what Paul Perkins is saying about the Paul Perkins picked a pick of pickled pictures. Let's get out our tongue twisters here and see what we can do on those. What does our cloud cover look like on the eastern part of Nebraska? Rather uh, cloudy there into eastern Nebraska, especially if you're along and east of a line from about O'Neill to Ord, Grand Island, Hastings, and Concordia. Not very summer-like on this first day of summer. Not so much. Yeah, we've seen very, (laughs) very cool conditions, as a matter of fact. We could take that if it would last for a few more weeks here before we get to those scorching 90s. Here is your... 880 Weather Watch, and it's brought to you by Holdridge Irrigation. Most definitely, we know that heat will eventually get back into our weather pictures. Yeah, once again, mostly cloudy skies into eastern Nebraska and Kansas. Still a little bit of light rain over northeast Nebraska towards about Spalding into the northeast corner of Nebraska. Temperatures underneath that cloud cover in the mid to upper 60s in eastern Nebraska and Kansas. But where there's sunshine, we're seeing readings right now in the low and mid-70s. Rain will remain possible today in central and east Nebraska, mainly along and east of Highway 281, which, of course, is the highway that runs north and south from O'Neill down through Grand Island and Hastings. Winds will be breezy out of the north as high pressure pushes in from the west and low pressure departs over the uh, Iowa area. So we're right in the middle of those two systems getting those strong north winds. Temperatures ranging from as cool as the 60s for daytime highs in some portions of the east to near 80 towards the southwest where there will be a lot more sunshine. Clearing skies across the entire region tonight and some lighter winds going to lead to one of our cooler nights we've seen in the past a month here with lows in most areas tonight in the 50s for that first night of summer. Dry and pleasant weather taking hold for tomorrow as high pressure moves overhead. It's not going to last long. Rain and thunderstorm chances start to return by tomorrow night with a disturbance off an approaching area of low pressure. Severe storms are possible over the west. That severe threat will diminish in the central and east when those thunderstorms start to move in later on tomorrow night. Chances for non-severe thunderstorms continue on Saturday before it briefly dries out on Sunday. Then that best chance for thunderstorms and severe weather starts to arrive by Sunday night into Monday night as an area of low pressure tracks east through the region. Also looking at the possibility of prolonged heavy rain and localized flooding. We'll have to watch and see how more information comes with that in the next few days. A ridge of high pressure starts to build north by Tuesday and beyond that, and that will rebound our temperatures back into the 90s by next Wednesday, in case you were missing those. In the long term, temperatures for Nebraska and Kansas likely to be warmer than normal. Tuesday through the 4th of July, Nebraska expected to see above normal rainfall the entire period of Tuesday through the 4th. Kansas rainfall should be above normal to start late next week and then trend near normal next weekend and through the 4th of July. In the latest National Weather Service outlook for July, August, and September, Nebraska and Kansas forecast to see slightly warmer than normal on temperatures and near normal rainfall. In the drought monitor that's out today, it considers data through this last Tuesday, which means it does not consider the rain that we had Tuesday night. There was a one percentage point improvement in Nebraska with 85% of Nebraska now drop free. It remains abnormally dry in southeast Nebraska along and east of a line from Polk to Aurora and Franklin. There was a three percentage point decline though in Kansas where it's 17% drop free. The drop free area in the northwest and north central from Phillipsburg to Stockton and Points West. Other areas north of I-70 and in eastern Kansas have normally dry to a moderate drought. 
Most areas south of I-70 remain in severe to extreme drought. In the markets, weather factors include continued Midwest rain and dryness reducing Russia wheat production. More thunderstorms forecast across the Midwest for another five to seven days. The rain and cooler weather will cause some crop stress due to flooding in areas of heavy rain in the Midwest. But the forecast about six to ten days from now predicts warmer and drier weather to alleviate any of those concerns for crop stress. The extra rain needs to be watched as critical corn pollination and soybean flowering stages start to begin in those areas. In the Black Sea region, south and east Ukraine and south Russia will continue to be hot and dry. Stress remains high on the developing corn, but should ease a little bit with some scattered rain over the weekend. That rainfall pattern, though, looks to continue at below normal levels. Drier conditions during the spring have already resulted in an estimated 20% decline in the Russia wheat crop compared with a year ago. All right, your regional ag weather brought to you by Holdridge Irrigation. Uh, so as we move on through this weekend, we're going to do, uh, see a slow rise in temperatures? Exactly. Uh, kind of basically about up near seasonal levels for this time of year as we head towards those low 80s and some periodic chances of some thunderstorms. Looks like the main show Sunday night into Monday night right. when that main low moves through. Very good. I've got it, by the way. <laughs> okay, we were doing the Peter... Piper thing before. So here you go. Ready? Roll tape. All righty. Perky Paul Perkins perfunctorily peers at pretty pictures to predict possible precipitation per prognosticator's possible promises. He did that all on the fly, folks, so Please. that's pretty good. When you need weather anytime. KRVN.com. Consider farm bill to immigration bills today. I'm Shaley Peters joining you now on the Rural Radio Network. Let's take a midday look at your ag news for a Thursday. The U.S. House of Representatives will take a second floor vote on H.R. 2, the Agriculture and Nutrition Act of 2018 otherwise known as the Farm Bill. The House Farm Bill, sponsored by Republican Michael Conway, failed last month, largely due to the Freedom Caucus demanding to first vote on immigration bills. According to the House Majority Leader website, the House will first vote on H.R. 4760, Securing America's Futures Act, and H.R. 6136, Border Security and Immigration Reform Act. The House measure promises greater job training opportunities for Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program recipients Democrats argue that the measure is poorly designed and would drive 2 million people off of the program. Congressman and member of the House Ag Committee Don Bacon weighs in on that. Not a single dollar is being cut from SNAP. And what we're saying is if you don't have dependent children, you're not over 60, or, uh, you know, uh, getting close to retirement there, or if, you're not, you know, if you don't have a handicap, you'll be required to do 20 hours of technical training or 20 hours work. But our goal is to help give people the tools so they can compete in the job market. And I think the taxpayers want that. And I think most people on SNAP will want to have that free technical training, and it's paid for. So I think it's a, I think it's a good reform. The Senate Ag Committee easily approved their version of the Farm Bill, and the current food and farm bill expires at the end of September. And as herbicide injury reports mount in the Midwest and South, state regulators and EPA are watching the situation closely. Dicamba is facing the most alleged injury reports so far 
and 2-4-D injury complaints are also an issue in some southern states. So far, dicamba injury complaints are most numerous in the southern states, but they are also beginning to be reported in Midwestern states, where post-emergence dicamba spraying in extent soybeans is still underway and double crop soybeans have yet to be sprayed. Injury to non-soybean crops and plants such as vegetables, fruit, ornamentals, and trees is being seen at a higher rate than last year. EPA is planning to make a decision by mid-August on whether or not to extend the registrations of Extendamax, Ingenia, and Fexapan, which expire in November 2018, said Tony Kofer, president of the Association of American Pesticide Control Officials. Our goal is to make a regulatory decision in time to inform seed and weed management purchase decisions for the 2019 growing season, said an EPA spokesperson. AAPCO is monitoring dicamba injury reports and trying to give EPA a real-time reporting of the situation this summer, Kofer said. And China could ratchet up its trade war tactics against the United States as President Donald Trump has escalated the trade war between the two nations this week. China knows how to fight a trade war and could go beyond retaliatory tariffs next. China has been known to successfully encourage its $1.4 billion population to give up products from targeted countries such as Big Macs and make business harder for U.S. companies in China. While China has far fewer U.S. imports to impose tariffs on, a trade expert told Politico that the reality is the Chinese can do quite a bit to hurt the U.S. companies in the Chinese markets. Tariffs that have yet to take effect will target U.S. agricultural products. Earlier this week, business and agriculture groups penned a letter to Congress seeking lawmakers' involvement to rein in Trump's agenda. The group asked for congressional oversight while detailing how Congress has power to regulate foreign trade. That's a look to your midday ag news. You're listening to the Rural Radio Network. Bryce Duskett back on the Rural Radio Network. I'm staying with David Brock. He's the director of the Nebraska Energy Office as we're talking about ethanol and energy as a whole today. It's an important conversation sure. that a lot of Americans are having right now. Yeah. Why is that? Well, I, I think because of the value that ethanol offers to consumers. I mean, it's, it is, uh, it's one of the lowest par- price beat energy source from when we look at putting something in our cars. Uh, almost all gasoline has at least 10 percent in, and almost all of our vehicles can actually a- handle 15 percent ethanol, and which helps make that price cheaper to the consumer, burns cleaner, less air pollution, all good things, I think. You sit on the governor's cabinet. Yes. What have you seen from the governor, Governor Ricketts, that is, in terms of his energy policy, specifically as it relates to ethanol? Well, c- certainly, you know, the, the governor's broad policy really has to do with growing Nebraska, and ethanol is a fantastic success story You know, Nebraska is the second largest ethanol producer in the country, second only to Iowa. And between Iowa and Nebraska, 40% of all the ethanol in the country is produced between our two states. And it has a dramatic impact then on the economic viability of the state. All across the state, we have 25 plants. They're uh, purchasing a lot of corn, providing distillers grains, and producing that really good fuel that I was talking about. Nebraska prides itself on kind of having the full triangle. It yeah, goes from corn absolutely. to the ethanol, then to the DDG for the cattle. And as somebody from West Point, Nebraska, you can relate specifically to that, I'm sure. Yeah, that's right. Uh, so I uh, grew up on a, on a farm that we fed cattle. And just as you said, it is that golden triangle that takes our success and our irrigated corn, this really good stable supply. We turn in an ethanol, and that distiller's grain is a fantastic cattle feed. And I can tell you that from personal experience growing up in that industry. 
Let's speak more broad uh, as you represent the entire energy sure. industry here in Nebraska. Where's, where's the most opportunity for growth there? Well, I think we have uh, opportunities just all across the way. As I said, you know, ethanol has a lot of opportunities from that standpoint. Uh, we look at, uh, from our natural resource standpoint, Nebraska is recognized as having one of the highest quality wind resources in the country. That's really talked about in the form of capacity factor, uh, which is the percentage that that windmill would be operating and Nebraska has the the top or the top two uh, capacity factors in the entire country we've seen a lot of building just in the last few years and I think we're going to continue to see that and then solar production has really started to increase as well and in fact we had almost a tenfold increase over the last uh, few years in solar so uh, we're seeing a lot of community solar projects just up the road from here uh, Fremont put together a really great project where their citizens could buy panels or buy into the community. We'll jump back on the ethanol question as we kind of round things out of where do we go from here from your perspective? Well, part of it is is increasing and making more robust and, and more access for consumers. As I said, it's really a great value. So one of the things that we at the state level have been able to take advantage of is a program that USDA had had uh, about three years ago, and we're wrapping up our program now. So the state of Nebraska got uh, funds from USDA. It was part of a $100 million grant that USDA had for all the states. Nebraska was one of 21 states that worked with it. We took those fu uh, the funds that we got, about uh, $2.3 million, matched that with states from both state government and, and private entities, and we have uh, helped uh, uh, to, to add uh, dispensers, fuel pumps that offer E85 and E15 at 20 different or 19 different locations around the state right now so that consumers have more access to those higher ethanol blends. Very good. Well, we appreciate your time today. That was David Brock. He's the director of the Nebraska Energy Office. On the Rural Radio Network, I'm Bryce Duskin. You're listening to Midday on the Rural Radio Network, and it's time to check sports with Jason Jorgensen. Hey, thanks, Derek. Well, another crop of millionaires will be made tonight as the Phoenix Suns have the number one pick in the NBA draft. They're expected to select Arizona center DeAndre Ayton. That would leave the Sacramento Kings with several options for their number two pick. Of course, they've been one of the league's lowliest franchises, not making the playoffs. Since 2006, Atlanta picks third, followed by Memphis and Dallas. University of Yukon says it fired men's basketball coach Kevin Ollie after finding NCAA violations that included improper workouts and improper contact with recruits by Ollie and former Yukon star Ray Allen. Violations are laid out in more than 1,300 pages of documents released to the Associated Press. Now, these documents include transcripts of interviews by the school's compliance staff and NCAA officials about alleged violations. They include second-hand information provided by former UConn assistants of an alleged $30,000 payment to the mother of one particular player. Well, the College World Series continues on tonight with one elimination game at 7. That'll be a matchup between Florida and Texas Tech. Yesterday, Oregon State stayed alive with a win over North Carolina, and Arkansas stayed unbeaten with a 7-4 win over Texas Tech. Former Nebraska All-American outside hitter Annika Albright has signed her first professional contract to play with the team in France in their top-tier A-League. Of course, she was named a second-team AVC All-American and All-Big Ten selection last year when she helped the Huskers to the national title. Nebraska's changed the dates of two of its home non-conference football games for 2020. Nebraska's game with Central Michigan will now be played on September 12th, and the Huskers' matchup with South Dakota State will be played on September 19th. 
The home of the Denver Broncos will now be known as Broncos Stadium at Mile High, while the team continues to look for a new naming rights sponsor. The team announced a temporary name change this week following a vote by the district that oversees a taxpayer-built facility. Now, the stadium has had two naming rights sponsors since it opened up in 2001, most recently Sports Authority. Both names included a reference to the Broncos' original stadium. Now, the team took down large signs with Sports Authority's name earlier this year after the company declared bankruptcy and had stopped making payments. And UNK head volleyball coach Rick Squires has announced that Grand Island native Steph Brand has been promoted to the program's top assistant position. Brand, UNK's graduate assistant the past two falls, replaces Kaylee Zuha, who left the Lopers this past spring, to become the head coach at Division II Valdosta State in Georgia. Brand was an all-stater at Grand Island Central Catholic and played collegiately at both Wayne State and UNK. That is a look at sports. Have a great day. I'm Jason Jorgensen. Stay tuned. More Midday is just ahead. You are listening to the Rural Radio Network. Mostly clear skies in western Nebraska tonight, but mostly cloudy in the east and a slight chance of showers along the Missouri River. I'm Dave Schroeder. Tens of millions of dollars in administrative cuts, continued restraint in hiring and purchasing, and other steps to manage reductions in state funding will hold the University of Nebraska system spending growth to near zero for a proposed 2018-2019 operating budget released today by President Hank Bounds. The proposed budget will be considered by the Board of Regents at its June 28th meeting. It includes $22 million in administrative cuts identified by the university-wide budget response team process that began in early 2017. University of Nebraska Kearney Chancellor Doug Christensen talked about how those cuts will impact UNK. We will have a budget reduction in there because we've got some expenses and some uh, lower tuition generating credit hours than we normally would have. So we're going to have to uh, take a look at that and begin to adjust to it. My guess is that we'll have a number here fairly soon that we can count on that will start our budget reduction. The university-wide budget response team cuts is equivalent to an 8% tuition increase has resulted in 118 lost jobs across the campuses, 39 of those at UNK. The Kansas Board of Regents has approved tuition and fee increases for all six public universities, citing a need to keep pace with rising costs and declining state support. Full-time resident undergraduate students attending the University of Kansas in Lawrence will see a combined increase of about 3%. The increase will bring the total of cost of tuition plus fees to nearly $5,574 per semester. The increase comes at a time when the university is also cutting its budget for the Lawrence campus by about $20 million. COZAD has a big weekend coming up with the Arts Festival this Saturday. However, it continues on Sunday with the viewing of an opera based on the story of John J. COZAD. The opera being performed by the Glenn Korff School of Music at UNL and is written by Tyler and Laura White. Caroline Goodrow, Henry Museum Director, talks about it. They are, they have written it, are in the process of writing it, and they will be performing just a few scenes from that just to give us a taste. Oh, wow. Yes, it's based on Robert's life um, on Son of the Gambling Man, so it should be very good. That will be at the um, Methodist Church. It's now so, 2 o'clock, and they'll perform, they'll talk about it a little bit, and then we'll have a reception afterwards so you can meet the, um, the authors and get together with them. Yeah. 
Reporting from the KRVN News Center, I'm Dave Schroeder. As Neil Armstrong once said, research is creating knowledge. And for 30 years and counting, that's exactly what Pioneer has been doing. Good afternoon, I'm Alex Wojcicki on the Rural Radio Network and joining me today on the phone from the Pioneer headquarters in Johnston, Iowa to discuss a few research findings is Pioneer Agronomy Manager Paul Carter. And Paul, if you would, start us off by walking us through this research process. Yes, so we did a collaborative uh, analysis of a long-term plant population study uh, that we conducted at Pioneer over the last 30 years, looking at changes in our uh, hybrids in their response to plant population and yield over that time. And th- this was done jointly with uh, Dr. Ignacio Ciampitti and his group at Kansas State University. And we found that, and this was published in a research journal recently, Scientific Reports, and some fairly significant findings, we think. There's about three things that this research showed that were new. One is that it substantiated that uh, yield gains over the last 30 years were due to increases in plant population, but we quantified that the percent of the yield increase due to plant population was in the range of 9 to 18 percent. Uh, that really, uh, those numbers hadn't been generated before. Uh, the second thing we showed that in the study analysis is that uh, as plant population has increased, uh, the range of optimum plant population has, has widened so that there's, there's less risk of having uh, too many plants now uh, compared to their, the past. And so there's more stability there uh, around the optimum with current hybrids th- than in the past. And the third thing we found is that the increases in yield with the current hybrids are not only due to increased crowding or density tolerance, as uh, was the case in the past, but it, it appears that uh, yield per plant is also increasing. And the significance of that is it provides a wider range of possibilities for increasing corn yield in the future than uh, just by increased plant population alone. So those are the three points that, that we found here. The best way to get local plant population information is from your local pioneer rep- representative. Uh, they have information on all our uh, hybrids, specific seeding rate uh, factors to consider, uh, local conditions, agronomic factors. And so we certainly encourage people to make those contacts. And these insights also can drive our Encirca stand variable rate seeding prescriptions uh, that are available from Pioneer as well. Now, was this research only conducted in Iowa or was it conducted throughout the Midwest? That's a good question. I, I'm glad you asked it because I, I want to emphasize that this was data collected throughout North America. So we, we had uh, about 40 locations per year in all the uh, key corn growing areas in the United States from, from the south uh, up through to the northern part of the, the country. And it, we also included locations in, in Canada as well. So this was a, a, a very widely distributed study from all those locations, about 40 per year across North America over the last 30 years. Paul, moving forward, looking into the future, are you planning to do any similar research with soybeans or other crops? Well, first of all, we'll continue this with corn. Uh, this is something that we do each year with our new hybrids, these plant population trials like this to 
to look at trends like this. And some of the things we'll, we'll do more with, with corn is to look more closely how this data relates to productivity levels and how it relates to seeding rate optimum in different conditions. Uh, as far as soybeans, we're initiating more analysis and more work there as well. We're finding with soybeans that some of the responses are, are actually inverse to those with corn. With corn, we generally see a, the plant population optimum is higher in higher productivity areas, and the optimum is lower in lower productivity areas. That's mostly likely due to water availability. With soybeans in general, it, it tends to be the opposite. We actually see uh, that the optimum plant population at high yield levels, particularly those areas where the soybean plants tend to grow tall, we, we may actually want a lower seeding rate there than in areas where if we have some drought during the vegetative stages, that can limit canopy cover, that can limit the pod height, and in order to increase canopy cover, we, we might actually want to increase the seeding rate in, in those lower productivity areas if a low water availability is the reason for that situation. That way, we can ensure we have a full canopy during grain fields so that if we get rain uh, during those uh, stages, we, we have a potential to capture light and, and get high productivity. So, But we need to look closer at, at that as well uh, because uh, that inverse response for soybeans is maybe opposite the thinking that uh, a lot of us have had over the years. Yeah, that's certainly interesting to think about. Well, Paul, while I have you on the phone, do you have any other comments you'd like to make? I, I just emphasize, uh, once again, that uh, there's probably never been as much information available that's, uh, as there is now and to uh, apply for Pioneer corn hybrids when it comes to variable rate seeding and with the Encirca Stan uh, variable rate seeding prescription options. And so I encourage folks to check with your local representative uh, uh, for that information. Well, we certainly thank you for your time, Paul. Again, that was Paul Carter, Pioneer Agronomy Manager, based out of the Pioneer Headquarters in Johnston, Iowa. From the Nebraska Soybean Board News Desk, which is brought to you in part by Nebraska Soybean Farmers and their checkoff, you're listening to the Rural Radio Network. Back on the Rural Radio Network, we get livestock comments from Joe Teal, Great Plains Commodities. Joe? Yeah, kind of a down day in the uh, cattle. Quiet, really, but uh, a little bit lower. Uh, I think a lack of uh, packer uh, interest is really uh, one of the reasons we uh, we were just a shade lower. It just seems like uh, hard to find any bids at this point. And uh, so we, uh, we settled off a little bit uh, during the day. Nothing uh, major, but uh, still lower, and uh, that is uh, reflected and we do have a cattle on feed report tomorrow at uh, three o'clock we'll see what uh, that has to say that might change some uh, direction may not over in the feeders uh, a lot lower uh, uh, came under some pretty good pressure but considering we are a, about a seven dollar premium uh, to the index uh, i can see where uh, uh, there was a little concern, and I think maybe uh, just a little bit of hedging uh, taking place. Hogs finishing mixed, very uh, very choppy. Started out lower, did manage to come back in the first three months, uh, primarily because we're discount now rather than carrying a premium uh, to the index. But cash seems a little on the soft side. Cutouts were just off a little bit. 
with cash a little bit lower, uh, that didn't uh, stop uh, some short covering after a pretty good break this week. Thanks, Joe. Joe Teal, Great Plains Commodities. Total cattle slaughter through Thursday this week, estimated at 478,000, thousand more than last week, actually 10,000 more. Hog slaughter at 1,744,000, 38,000 less than a week ago. Trade spats continue to dominate headlines here in 2018, and agriculture and ag products unfortunately continue to be on the front lines of many of these trade negotiations and these trade rifts between the U.S. and its trading partners. While there's plenty of negative news to talk about trade, what about a little bit of positivity with emerging markets that are hungry for U.S. products? That's what we're discussing this afternoon right here on the Rural Radio Network. I'm Clay Patton. Joining us here to discuss this is Norfolk Mayor Josh Moaning. And Josh, you just recently had the chance to participate in an ag trade mission and a general trade mission with Vietnam where Nebraska representatives, including yourself, were displaying and representing Nebraska products. Josh, let's start with just kind of talking about the trip and in one in particular ag product that Vietnam was very hungry for. Sure. It was a uh, eye-opening experience in a lot of ways. Uh, Vietnam is bursting at the seams. It's the world's fastest-growing economy and is projected to remain so over the next two decades. We spent most of a week, about about five full days in Hanoi, and this was part of a Nebraska beef trade effort. We met with various food distribution service companies and also government officials, and, you know, one of the takeaways is that, uh, again, this is a very rapidly growing economy, somewhat similar to China. A lot of people are moving up into the middle class, and as they do so, their appetite for better protein options um, increases. And so there was a real interest in American beef in, in Vietnam. There's some in the country right now, but it mostly is catered to the hospitality industry. Uh, so there's a lot of opportunity, in the, opportunity, I think, in the broader market. And part of the reason we were there was to do a market assessment on on just that. Where are there opportunities in uh, the Vietnamese market for American beef, specifically? Josh, is there anything in particular that the Vietnamese appreciate or like best about U.S. beef compared to where they currently source it from? Yeah, just generally it was interesting, uh, some more kind of broad impressions. Uh, we were we learned and were told that uh, uh, America is very popular in Vietnam. In fact, there's an 85% approval rating for everything American in Vietnam, which is uh, kind of astonishing. It's hard to get 85% approval rating for anything, um, probably including Nebraska football in Nebraska. Right? So... Um, there's a there was a pizza hut uh, just down the street from my hotel burger king popeyes so there there's a, a good deal of western influence and with that uh there's a real interest in american food products there's primarily primarily right now vietnam imports most of its beef from japan and australia um they are looking though now for higher quality uh, beef options, and they're also very concerned about uh, food safety. So I think there's, uh, I, I think there's some opportunity there for American beef producers, both large and small, 
uh, in the Vietnamese market. Business as in trade, customer retention is always important and top of mind, but you also have to explore new customers and emerging markets for trade. And there's one interesting common theme, whether you're talking Asian Pacific nations, European or other nations, when it comes to beef, they like the flavor and the taste of Nebraska and U.S. beef. This is the Rural Radio Network. Dewey Nelson on the Rural Radio Network as we close higher in wheat and corn futures, but lower in soybeans. We're joined by John Payne, Senior Marketing Analyst with Daniels Ag Marketing in Chicago and publisher of the newsletter, This Week in Grain. So there was at least some support in this wheat market. It looked like corn was kind of content to just uh, follow wheat today. Yeah, it's... Uh you know, somebody shut the volatility switch off, and all of a sudden we, we had all this movement, uh, you know, starting early week, and, and now it's just dead. You know, wheat trading in like a three-cent range all day. Corn, I mean, new crop just stuck at, at uh, 377. You know, to close a pretty good pretty good level here, I, I don't know how much upside we have in the short term, uh, given the delivery upon us and just the abundance of moisture. Now, you know, that could become an issue at some point on one side. I mean, as we've, we've talked for months now, it's, it's going to take a perfect crop. For uh, you know, for us to get back to these levels where we are right now, where grain stocks are going to be in a couple of days, uh, and next year they're going to be substantially smaller if we have a trend yield. But uh, you know, the amount of moisture we've gotten, I wonder if there is an issue anywhere uh, with the amount that they've gotten. If there's any flooding, it's, I'm hearing standing water in places. But at this point, still June 21st, the forecast now for pollination, you know, are going to start to be scrutinized a little more. There's just so much moisture out there right now, and they're calling for more. Uh, looks, looking at just the main part of the Corn Belt. Really, just draw a line across I-80. Everybody's going to get between two and a half and almost five inches of rain over the next week. Uh, that's that's you know I don't know if it's problematic or not, but it it certainly will bring uh, uh, all the drought bulls to their knees. What about next week's government report? Well, yeah, again, that's the grain stocks one that I think you know it's kind of baked in the cake here. I mean, we understand there's a lot of supply around, and I, it's for me there's, the risk really is more on the planting side. If we could see planted acreage maybe fall. You know, maybe in the 87s, that could be something that would really push push some of these shorts out. But again, even if yields, if, if we do 87 on 180 or 182, it's very similar to doing, uh, uh, you know, 177 on on 88 and a half, 89. So at this point, you know, I think the trade is kind of in the opposite stance where we've been the last couple of years, where we go into the middle part, you know, the crop tour. We're all thinking maybe we're going to do a 165 or a 170 yield. That's not been the case at all. It's it's in simply perfection, and I think the trade maybe has a 180 in mind right now, which you know could bring some bullish into play. But I, I would just wonder how much supply rally we're going to get, even on a, if if things would turn dry and hot over the next two to three weeks. Thanks, John. John Payne, senior marketing analyst, Daniel's Ag Marketing in Chicago, publisher of the newsletter this week in grain. You can go and get more information by contacting them, DanielsAgMarketing.com. As corn finishes three to three and a quarter higher, winter wheat futures gained in Chicago over Kansas City. 